You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this very special edition of Inside Healthcare. Today, we feature the first winners of NCQA's Innovation Award. Now, this podcast was recorded at the Healthcare Quality Congress in a reception hall, so accept our apologies for some of the background noise, but it's pretty good. We wanted to share their stories and highlight how these organizations are doing an amazing job improving the quality of care. So, first up, a brief chat with Dr. Christopher Grimsrud of Kaiser Permanente of Northern California. First of all, congratulations uh, on the on the big win, and it's the inaugural year of these innovation awards. So that's fantastic work upon your part. And then you at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California were competing against Kaiser Permanente across the country in many cases, and you guys came out on top. Let's start with what do you suspect really appealed to the judges about your project? Well, I think it's a project where we had to involve multiple different specialties. We involved teams. We worked with both our health plan, our hospital, and our physician group uh, to make a real change that's made a big difference in people's lives. Tell me about the project. So it was a big project involving a lot of different people, and I'm here representing Kaiser Permanente. And um, a lot of people. And a lot of people. Uh-huh. Uh, literally thousands of people were involved in this project. Hmm. Uh, but it took the senior leadership, first of all, to give us approval and guidance and set the agenda for us. Uh, from there, uh, we developed a team. We started the project with total joint surgery, but then it subsequently expanded into surgical home recovery, which was a lot of different specialties focusing on general surgery and urology uh, in terms of helping their patients to go home same day as well. In terms of starting the the total joint project it was really a team that got together initially led by physicians and our consultants or business consultant group Uh, we plotted out how the process could potentially work developed a playbook and developed some pilot centers we had learnings from those pilot centers that then rolled out to other medical centers each medical center had their own team working on it and the specific Uh, Hospitals are different places, they have different physical plants, so it took different adaptations to the project to make it work at each medical center. But the overall goals were set by the regional team, educational materials were provided by the regional team, and coordination and tracking and measurement was all done by the regional team. So it took a lot of people involved at every medical center. Well, tell me though, in the simplest terms, people who are just sort of tuning in and, uh, and finding out what we're talking about, what was the issue that you were trying to tackle and how did you identify that issue ahead of time? I mean, how did it reveal itself to you? I, should, right. I guess is probably a better way of putting it. So I think home recovery is something that's coming to the forefront of people's thoughts. Who really needs to be in the hospital and who can recover safely in their own home? Uh, and this is something that's happened across the nation, not just in orthopedics, but in multiple different specialties. It was pretty routine for patients to stay four or five nights in the hospital after a total joint surgery. Mm. And over time, we had gotten it down to one or two nights. And so that prompted the question, well, could patients start to go home same day? And we noticed that there were certain patients who really didn't want to stay in the hospital, had a real aggressive aversion to being in the hospital. And, And those patients were able to go home and be safe at home. They were really our test cases. 
And from there, we were able to develop a system so that a lot of people felt like they were safe to go home. It really depended on that multidisciplinary team, physical therapy, mm -hmm. lots of people helping them along. What about the patient, I'm just asking from a sort of a consumer approach, right. what about the patient who doesn't want to go home, who's worried, they get to stay? Right, well, so we talk to the patient. Yeah. Uh, and we do think that it's safer for the patient to go home if they've passed all their therapy goals, they're otherwise doing well, their pain is controlled, mm -hmm. they're having a good post-operative course. So we talk to them about it. If the patient says, no, I'm not going home, <laughs> we don't kick them out of the hospital. How often does that happen? Anecdotally, I uh, Anecdotally, it's probably 5 10% of patients that we end up having this discussion with. Huh. A majority of patients feel comfortable with going home by the time they get to their surgery date. Uh, there are some people who don't, and there are some people who don't have the support at home that they need, or they have a very difficult situation uh, for whatever reason. Maybe they have a house with 150 stairs, like a patient I had recently. Mm -hmm. And so they, those are patients that are harder to go home. They have bigger physical tests when they get home. Mm -hmm. uh, and so those patients will tend to stay the night. So then, um, what were the sort of, out, what are your outcomes? What is the big you know, exclamation mark at the end of this. First of all, I imagine it is continue this work because they were positive outcomes, but spread to other health centers, that sort of thing. Well, it actually takes active management to be able to get people to go home. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of how we're doing, we've made dramatic changes in total joint surgery. It's gone from a home recovery rate of about 15, 20% by the, when we started the project to now we're at 80% in mm. our medical centers across Northern California. That's Which, what you need the congratulations for, not, not just our award. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. And then surgical home recovery, which is uh, lap laparoscopic appendectomy, uh, mastectomy, uh, and TERP procedures have gone from being in the 50-60% range, 70% range, to now 90% patients are going home same day. So a similar kind of increase in, in uh, home recovery. Hmm. Uh, we haven't seen problems with this, so we've been tracking quality outcomes, and that's most critical, right? We want our patients to be safe, we want them to do well, and our returns to care have not increased with an increase in home recovery rates. What was the biggest challenge in all of this? Was there some challenges changing minds and sort of engaging uh, your colleagues? Uh, was it challenges uh, with administrative things, or was it the challenge of every medical center is different, and so they have sort of different issues and different ways to handle them? Right. So it's a, it's a change in the way that we're doing things. So if you go from three nights to two nights in the hospital, people see that as a pretty benign change. People are ready to go home. When you go from one night stay in the hospital to zero night stay in the hospital, there were a lot more people who put up barriers to that. And in our organization, we're lucky that we don't have financial barriers. In some organizations, they actually have financial barriers to sending patients home early. We don't have that in our organization because we're largely a capitated system. We noticed that unless we had a consistent message that was delivered to the patient and their family at every step along the way that it was safe to go home and that we could show the care provider's data that it was safe to go home, if you have one or two people who say, oh, well, you wouldn't really want to go home, that, that, that you know, something could happen always something could happen, mm -hmm. uh, then that would really uh, defeat the purpose for everything. We found a lot more patients would be resistant to going home. Because it was a change, and with every change, there's an emotional barrier to get over right. to change our behavior. Right. My next question is, what makes, beyond a patient's desire to go home, what makes home better than being at the 
at the medical center for another night. So um, I've had patients in my own practice who have gone home the, the same day. They've said compared to their first joint where they didn't go home the same day, they found they were more active. They could do what they wanted to do. They didn't have to wait for a call button for a nurse to come in when they wanted to get out of bed to go to the bathroom. Uh, they had more control over their surroundings. They felt safe and comfortable at home. Uh, and they had their family around them. So one of the things we ask our patients is you need to have a family member or some, a caregiver or friend, somebody there who can help you. I don't know if the numbers are there yet. Are you more likely to heal quicker and better if you're at home or are we still? We, we don't know those quality outcomes yet, uh -huh. the long-term quality outcomes. We started to parse down into that uh, that level of data analysis and we're hoping to get there in the next couple of years. Um, you know, for example, if the patients are more mobile, we might expect we see a lower uh, DVT or blood clot rate, hmm. uh, but we don't have that data yet. That, that's why we need to do the study is to find out if our assumptions are really true. So you know what that means, everyone listening, stay tuned. Congratulations again to Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, a great project in sort of paving new roads for other clinicians. Congratulations. Thank you. Great talk. Next up, a conversation with Dr. Pallavi Kamula of Arno Ogden Medical Center. Tell me about the project. You must be very proud, and let me say congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So it all started with DISRIP, and through DISRIP, we did what's called the Medicaid Access, um, Medicaid Accelerated Exchange Program called the MAX Project, wherein we kind of focused on patients with four or more inpatient admissions within the last 12 months and then, you know, kind of screen them with palliative care uh, screening tools as well as we did psychosocial assessments to figure out, you know, what was the barrier to staying healthy? Why did they keep coming back to the hospital? Why were they in the ED as much as they were? And from that stemmed um, my project, the transitions to home. A lot of times patients get a ton of information thrown at them at the time of discharge. So we've tried to spread that information through their hospitalization with our COPD and CHF navigators. Um, that's like the COPD and CHF is the bread and butter of hospital medicine. Um, and then once they go home, we have this transitional team, which is our transitional case manager and a resident physician that visit them in the house, look at their discharge summary, look at their discharge medications, make sure um, and correlate that that is what they're in fact, you know, taking at home. And a lot of times failures, the proper handoff, mm -hmm. um, is what prevents them from staying healthy and at home. It always, people will joke, it always comes back to me, but I've been a serious patient, like with a serious illness, and mm -hmm. I understand how patients, and I'm a guy who I believe who try, I work in healthcare, I'm trying to be adherent, but I can see how people get confused, yes. especially when you're treated uh, and you're getting a lot of different medications, mm -hmm. and physicians are trying out different, you know, switching your medication so it's the best for you, yes. right? And so then you get confused, and then and that can be a problem, and, yep. and that's what was happening, correct? Yes. Like, for instance, I had a patient who was discharged. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with medications, but it's a beta blocker, uh -huh. so it, it helps with high, high blood pressure and keeps your heart rate down. It's good for your heart. And then he went and saw his primary care physician who increased the medication. Then he went and saw his cardiologist who changed it to a different beta blocker. He was readmitted to the hospital and then we went out to see him because, of, because he was readmitted, so he was a high risk for you know, another admission to the hospital. 
And we saw that he was on four different beta blockers and he was taking all of them. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. That was the reason. So that's interesting. So, so now we're, we're sort of changing that and we're beginning to see the results. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about that. Inpatient encounters, ED encounters, um, we've decreased it pretty significantly, decreased the post-visit utilization of the hospital. We've also decreased our readmission rates um, and just cost for healthcare in general. Um, but I think, you know, one added benefit to the patients is, um, like my resident said, I mean, they do appreciate the service because you know, when they're in the hospital and they're being discharged, there's a certain time allotted for the discharge process. Then they go see their primary care physician and it's a 15 to 20 minute appointment and there's only so much a primary care physician can do. But we spend an hour in the home. Uh, we go through their cabinets, their pantry, ask them to bring every pill that they have to us. So I think that extra time that we take obviously is, you know, making the impact. Hmm. Congratulations to you for your results. Thank you. And congratulations to you for your honorable mention award. And I think we should tell our audience why it was honorable mention. And that is because this award, when we set it up, was for mostly plans, yes. not providers. You submitted an award submission anyway. And we just frankly couldn't pass it up because we were so proud of you. So Thank you. I really appreciate congratulations. it. Congratulations. And now, look, you've made change for us, too, because next time we're including providers. I know. In fact, I had Blue Cross Excellus, who's the primary insurance coverage organization in our community, come to me after my presentation. And they've already sent emails to their home office to contact me to see what they can do to help leverage the program. So... I just believe that going forward, I think, you know, physicians, providers need to work with the insurance plans hand in hand. can never go wrong with coordination, can you? And that's exciting that you say that, too, because this very conference where you and I are holding this interview is the Healthcare Quality Conference is actually going to also be the PCMH Congress next year. So okay. we will be doing that for NCQA. You, doctor, are a trendsetter. Thank you and congratulations again. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. And finally, we feature Nick Dombra. He's with WellCare Health Plans. You are the first winner <laughs> of the NCQA Innovation Awards. Your uh, organization is WellCare. Uh, yeah, it was a huge honor, great surprise for us when we got the notification. You know, we sat there for a second and we're like, wait a minute, what? And <laughs> then we let it sink in and we were just overjoyed. <laughs> Well, that's great to hear. Yeah. I mean, really, that's great to hear. But we want to uh, highlight people who are doing good things. And I suppose our judges decided you were doing good things. Yeah. Tell us about those good things. This is a special project. This is a special project. So it was one of the things we started really discussing. How do we take what we're doing in quality to the next level? How do we get that local impact? And we've seen it sporadically here and there, like small scale, maybe looking at a couple measures and understanding what are the population nuances. And we realized that the approaches are great, but they're always small scale and not large enough for us to be able to find things that we don't know. That's one of the biggest things going into this project is we don't know what we don't know about disparities. We know what's out there, we've, we've read the research, we attend the seminars, we know what's there. We don't know what's not there, and we also were looking at it saying, what about our members, exactly our population? What's happening with our members? 
And that kind of was the nexus for this, is saying, well, I understand what's happening in the state. I want to understand what's happening with our members. You know, specifically what's going on in their communities, what's going on with these people that we are helping. So that was the nexus for it, is saying, how can we get to that level of understanding of our population? So how did you do it? Oh, it's a lot. Uh, so, you know, it, it's always been, we've worked very closely together. So my leader, Kim Wooten, and uh, Dr. Lee, our statistician, and I always say resident magician. So we just started really talking about how could we do this in a meaningful way, thinking where could we approach this. And it started off very small. It started off really small of saying, well, let's pull a few measures for a couple states and see if we can start drawing parallels, see if we can understand what, what could it look like if we did this. So it was a side project, very much a side project. It wasn't fully integrated as our day job. And it was about, first, what are the couple indicators we want to think about? So we, we picked the traditional ones. We looked at, okay, let's pull race, let's pull geography, uh, let's pull gender. So some of the things that we talked about, let's start there, because we know we can pull from that. And it was taking in the data, you know, so much data to kind of clean up and make sure do we have the right gender? Do we have the right information for this person? Do we understand where their zip code is? Because you're nowhere if the data's not valid, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. And so that's a huge struggle for us was the data that we're getting in from external sources and making sure that it's the right level of accuracy and completeness that we need to form valid conclusions. So that's part of the huge cleanup process was really churning through that information and then creating that sample report of this is what it could look like and seeing what did we find here. And you know, the first thing we found were that measures we knew were at issue were there and we pulled some extra measures just to see things that align with a lot of uh, MTQA ratings and we were very surprised at some of the trends we were seeing and so that kind of triggered us to say let's make it larger. Let's bring this bigger. We, we have a nugget of something. No longer a side project. Yes. We went to our <laughs> leadership and, and uh, our leader, he was very interested. He wanted to root cause. He wanted to find more. He wanted to say what else is out there that we don't know about our members. So it really grew from there. We got leadership backing. That always helps. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, leadership turned around and said, let's make this big. Let's yeah. see how far you can take this. You know, come up with a plan for phase one, two, three, four, <laughs> come up with a plan for this and set goals for it, see what we can accomplish and be unrealistic was kind of our directive because it was something that was so out there. And so our directive was, let's be unrealistic. Let's reach for the moon and see what can we do and then find out what we can't do. So it really was a pie in the sky approach and seeing what can we capture. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about finding out about your population and the disparities there. It's also about finding the resolution yes. or how you're going to address those disparities, correct? Absolutely. So the, the analytics and the data and all the statistical modeling, that's the first part, right? And incredible amount of work goes into that. But now we're saying, take that and add this extra component to it. Take what is the understanding of gender norms? What is the understanding of racial uh, sub-stereotypes? and even things like additional indicators, uh, language spoken, when we're looking at low-income subsidy, adding these additional factors to say, now that we know this, what are we going to change about what we're doing to make that a meaningful use of data? Are we taking it to a national level? We are, yes. So it's a national scope now, and something that we've done is we've been really 
very clear and distinct about our rollout of it. We spent time with every one of our market partners and going through, this is what we have so far, this is our vision for the next steps, and we want to hear from you, every person using this, what do you want to see, what do you want to change? Because I love our program team, it's myself and Kim and Tiffany, I love us. But our minds are our minds. We want to hear from more people. So the more people we're using this, we want to hear from every single one of them. What other factors can we include? So it's rolling out national. All of our partners are doing this now. And all of our partners in the corporate headquarters. So integrating this into our care management and the model of care. Integrating this into our provider network and understanding where are the network gaps and what kind of gaps are we seeing gaps that are tied to racial disparities, gaps that are tied to ethnic disparities. What are those gaps aside from purely the access standards? All of our local plans are on board. They're digging into the data to such a degree, and we're already getting fantastic feedback. That's great news. When do you expect that this will make an impact on closing those disparities? Because that's what folks, you know, really want to see. Yeah, so what we've been doing on a smaller scale, we've seen impacts, we've seen some big, some small impacts, so we've seen that very segmented, I'll say. Mm -hmm. And what we're hoping to see is with the release of this information, all of our partners and what we're doing from our perspective is we're shepherding it, we're meeting with them, we're talking, we have the data, we've noticed this, do you notice this, what can we create to do this? We're really hoping to see impacts in next year's rates. So when we run this and we look at what are our HEDIS rates, and then we run the next level of, okay, what is our, what is our HEDIS rate for an African-American woman? What is our HEDIS rate for somebody who speaks Spanish? We want to see that next year. And it's, it's an ambitious goal. Like I said earlier, we, we are shooting for the moon on everything that we do. So next year, HEDIS rates is crossing fingers when we're hoping to see those outcomes. And Fortunately for you, NCQA is rolling out electronic measures that you can manipulate yes. from HEDIS, from the starting point of HEDIS, the, the usual measure, you can sort of tailor that to your needs. How do we now leverage what we're doing with that? So the clinical data capture, the digital measures, looking at that, and we were even just uh, attending one of the sessions earlier that was focused on person-centered planning and how do we layer fulfilling goals for a long-term care member with the fact that they're part of different communities, different racial communities, ethnic communities. How does it impact goal fulfillment for a long-term care person? And that does it for this very special edition, little lengthy edition of Inside Healthcare. Before you go, though, I want to ask you to take a look at www.qualitytalks.org. We've got a full stable of speakers set up for Quality Talks this year. Uh, and the talks have moved earlier in the year to the spring. So April 28th is the date. You should plan to be there. And you won't believe the sort of stable of great speakers we've put together for you. So we look forward to seeing you there. And then one more ask before I go. Give Inside Healthcare a rating, please. We of course, don't advertise, but we do like to move up in the search results, and your reviews will help us do that. Thank you for listening to Inside Healthcare. I'm Matt Brock. We'll see you again, no doubt.